0: Southwest, is a confirm on the road? Rolling on now. Uh, Southwest aboard. FedEx is on the go. Welcome back, beautiful people, to the Tailwinds and Sunshine podcast, episode number 5, number 5. Damn it, man. It had to happen again, didn't it? This time at Austin Bergstrom International in Austin, Texas, where a FedEx Heavy was performing an ILS Cat 3 to runway one he left. At the same time, a Southwest 737 was clear to take the same runway. These two planes came within 100 feet of each other. 100 feet. Just to give you an idea or a pictorial or visual of this, that is about the same length as the wingspan of an Embryer 175. That's the plane I fly. That's how close all these people got to death. And it's really unfortunate that this gets out in the news because it's it deters people from traveling, you know, and it's... It's unfortunate this happens, and it, and it happened too soon, way too soon. If you haven't heard uh, episode four, I talk about the incident that happened at New York's JFK where a American 777 Heavy crossed runway four left, an active runway, as a Delta 737 was taken off from the same runway. They came within 1,000 feet of each other, Hats off to the tra- air traffic controller because he prevented America's Tenerife. He literally saved lives that day uh from from these two airplanes colliding so i'm going to be talking and deconstructing this incident the one at uh texas and from the human factors perspective most accidents and incidents nowadays are a result of human error they're caused by people just like you and me i'm going to talk about this and more on today's episode let's go folks from the flight deck this is your captain speaking welcome to the tailwinds and sunshine podcast where we talk everything aviation i am your host manny ramirez it's always a pleasure to have you on board so please sit back relax and enjoy the show awesome, tower fedex 1432 heavy passing 5.4 for the cat 3 ils one left FedEx 1432 heavy Austin Tower, 18 left RVR, touchdown 1,400, may point six hundred 600, rollout 1,800, one18 left, clear to land. So to land left, FedEx 1432 heavy. So, so far everything seems normal. The tower controller cleared FedEx to land 18 left. And when you heard the controller say to FedEx, it was RVR, that stands for runway visual range. So some airports have instrumentation along the runway, so they can determine the visual conditions or the uh, visibility, I should say, of the runway. And they have three numbers. They have the beginning, the, num- uh, the beginning, the middle, and the end, where they call the rollout. So this was this standard. Everything seems normal. Now here comes Southwest. Tower Southwest 708. We're short of when it left already. Subway 708 off the tire. Runaway 1-8 left. RV 1,200. Midpoint 600. Roll out 1,600. flying one seven zero, one 1-8 left. Clear takeoff. Traffic three-mile final. It was a heavy 767. Okay. one seven zero, 7 Clear for takeoff. 1-8 left. Copy the traffic. Subway 708. Okay. So now we have at least two individuals that over pretty much did not see the problem with this clearance. So the air traffic controller cleared... Southwest onto the runway while an active ILS approach was being conducted. When there's there's IMC or instrument meteorological conditions conducive to an ILS or the need of an ILS approach, the controller is not supposed to put anyone on the runway. And correct me if I'm wrong, any controllers out there, please correct me if I'm wrong, but they're not supposed to put anyone on that runway. So then Southwest agreed to that clearance knowing there was a airplane on final on a three mile final for the runway and they agreed to this clearance so now there's a breakdown here if you think think about the swiss cheese model once again here we have multiple layers being passed through because we are not paying either not paying attention not familiar with the procedures or we're just uh you know just kind of slipped our mind now you're going to hear the FedEx pilot come on the free, on the radio asking if he is actually, in fact, clear to land on one eight left. Tower, confirm uh, FedEx fourteen thirty two heavy clear to land on one eight left. FedEx fourteen thirty two heavy, that is affirmative. One eight left, you are clear to land. Traffic department project, routes seven thirty seven. Roger. So this was yet another opportunity for all members involved to rectify the situation, and the FedEx pilot came on frequency to verify they were clear to land when he left because I bet that he felt something was off. Something wasn't right. And this was another opportunity for the controller to realize his mistake and make the call for FedEx to go missed approach and for the Southwest plane to reject the takeoff. But it didn't happen. Certain things, and I think that was clicking more with the FedEx crew, Something didn't seem right. They were a little bit more aware of the situation, but they didn't act on it. It could be because they're not super familiar with the procedures and limitations on the uh, ILS approach or category three, or maybe they were complacent and they said, you know what? Our instrumentation looks uh, looks good. Seems accurate. Let it go. That plane, the Southwest plane that's going to be off the runway It's going to be no factor, but that didn't happen. And now it gets worse. Listen to this. Southwest has already confirmed on, the road. on now. What? Literally, they've been holding there for ages on the active runway with a plane on a three-mile final for the same runway they're sitting on. What's going on in the pilots of the Southwest flight? I don't know. But if they were going to be sitting on that runway for that long, they should have told the tower controller, we need a small delay. 15 seconds on the runway, 30 seconds on the runway, who knows? But the fact that they were sitting on that runway knowing there was a heavy coming their way, unacceptable. Unacceptable. By the time they were on their way rolling, the FedEx was probably on a short final for the runway. And this is what happens next Southwest abort. FedEx is on the go. Holy shnikes. What you just heard was not the controller calling for an aborted takeoff from Southwest. That was the FedEx pilot telling the Southwest crew to reject their takeoff. And FedEx conducting the missed approach. And now what's now what's gonna happen, what you're gonna hear is a controller's gonna read back. There's some confusion in the tower. The controller has completely lost situational awareness of what's going on, and this is what happens next. Southwest that was all right, Roger. You can turn right when able.. Negative. So this tower controller thought that Southwest had called for their own rejected takeoff. So he had lost situational awareness of the situation. That's kind of redundant. But I'm going to give him some credit. It was foggy, and from the tower, from his vantage point, I'm sure he couldn't see anything. But this tower controller lost situational awareness, and Southwest was already airborne. That's why they said negative, because they were already in the air. And I don't know if they realized what was right on top of them at this point. A 767 full of rubber duck crap, and they came to about 100 feet of each other. That's the average wingspan of most narrow-body aircraft, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. That's scary. So the controller vectored them around, and eventually... The controller did apologize for the incident and thanked the FedEx pilots for their professionalism. Honestly, I would be asking the controller. I'd be giving the controller a number for them to copy. And then i call tower because this is definitely going to be investigated by the FAA and the NTSB because this cannot continue happening. This is embarrassing. This is dangerous. And there's many factors. I didn't talk about much about the Southwest crew. I talk about FedEx and the air traffic controller. But the Southwest crew is just as responsible for what happened. Believe it or not, they're going to be investigated as well as to what happened because it was a tower controller, the Southwest crew, and the FedEx crew for what happened here on Saturday. So what else is going on, guys? So I commuted back from Denver once again. I left all my recording stuff here in Vegas. It's not much, but every little bit counts when it comes to weight in my bags i'm the one that has to haul all this stuff around airports buses vans through airports like i said before so i thought i would be smarter to leave all this stuff here and then start recording again so i didn't really work I, i compiled a list of things i wanted to talk about and some of those ideas came from all of you i picked topics based on what you guys want me to talk about i have ideas Of what I want to talk about. But I find that your suggestions are a little bit more fun. They're more entertaining. But this is the incident in Austin, Texas. Was definitely something I want to talk about. Because it's newsworthy. It's on the media. Everyone knows about it. Or at least all the aviation nerds like myself know about it. Other than that, I've just been working. I've been in the training department. And luckily... There's not that much snow anymore at the Denver employee parking lot. So when I uh, I parked there on Sunday, yesterday, I'm losing track of time, guys. I am drunk on life. So I actually parked, had no issues, perfect, came here, and guess what happened? It was so exciting. On the approach into Vegas, we did a go-around. I was a passenger, and we went around. I looked outside when we were landing. I had a window seat this time. And they floated. At first, it looked like it was going to be kind of a nice, firm landing. But then I said, oh, no, it's going to be a soft landing. But then it didn't feel anything. And I told myself, did we land? Was this the smoothest landing ever? But then I I felt the plane sink. And by that time, we had... Already passed the touchdown zone, and we went around. The captain came on the raw PA later, as we were getting revectored for another approach, and she said that it was because of winds. I was like, BS! It was not because of winds. The pilot literally had a floater past the touchdown zone, and they had to go around. Then we got vector for another runway. They were using the uh, the approach to one left. They were using two six left, with one left. Most of the approaches were coming into two six left. Some of them were actually very, very few of them were coming to one left. They were taking off of runway one right, landing two six left and one left. The winds were, I believe, zero one niner at thirteen. So that was only a twelve knot crosswind. From two six on two six left, only a 12 knot crosswind. So and it wasn't gusty at all. Because when we we're making the approach, it was nice and smooth. I didn't feel any bumps. I didn't feel the plane rocking back and forth or side to side, I should say. So I knew it was a nice stable approach. It's just that the pilot just floated it. And it must have been a new pilot, perhaps, when I went into the flight deck to check in with the crew. He seemed pretty young. His uniform looked very crisp. There was still a sparkle in his eye, so I was like, "Okay, this guy's got to be an IOE." <laughs> so when I saw that landing, I was like, "Okay, here we go." But it was not nice excuses. Oh, the winds are—they're reconfiguring for the other runway. I was like, "B.S." We passed the touchdown zone, but good call, good call on the crew or the pilot monitoring in this case to make that call for that go-around. Very smart. I really do appreciate it. it was my first that I can remember. My first go-around as a passenger. I've only had one go-around in my professional career. I'm not going to talk about it, you know, not the details of it, but we went around, you know, because it was a smart thing to do. So I want to talk about the stable. I want to talk about stabilized approach criteria. And I want to talk about what constitutes a go-around, what makes us go around and what you should expect as a passenger. So stabilized approach criteria, I'm not going to go into deep in the weeds about what is a stabilized approach criteria, but just in the name it states it, right? We have to be stable. So we can't be doing any abrupt m- maneuvers. We have to have certain tasks and configuration of the airplane complete by certain altitudes. And if we don't, we have to go around. So if we don't, if we reach a point that we don't have a specific checklist complete or we don't have, we're above a certain speed, we have to call We have to call a go around and it doesn't have to be super excessive. It doesn't have to be like you're, you feel like you're top gunning it down to a, an aircraft carrier. No, but it's a safe. We make sure that it's safe, that we make sure that these approaches are safe and stable. So let's say you're coming in for a landing. You're doing an approach and you had wind shear. So wind shear is a rapid change of wind direction and speed. If that happens, we have to go around. We have a procedure for that. If we don't meet certain criteria by a certain altitude or waypoint, then we go around. Certain speeds, descent rates, etc. We have to go around. It's also pilot's discretion. Let's say we have, obviously, if we have something on the runway, if we have a plane on the runway, we have to go around, and those are executed. In the very I want to talk about how they are executed and how important it is to make the proper callouts. So the pilot flying can do, so pilot flying, pilot monitoring have to make their call-outs to make sure that it goes smoothly. And we train this in the training department as part of procedures training, maneuvers, et cetera. And we make sure that your call-outs when you're going through training are impeccable. You call them out at the right time. You have the proper response. You get the proper cues. So you can make that because your next actions are dependent on the response from the other pilot. Because we ha- we're we in a landing configuration and we have to increase thrust, pitch up at a certain degree. Once we have airspeed, it's above VREF or reference speed for landing. Then we call for flap or our takeoff flap or flaps, depending on what company you're at. And then after that, it becomes a normal takeoff, right? We see the or VSI, positive rate, gear up. And then we make our call-outs after that. Configure. Go to our after-takeoff checklist. Then reconfigure for another approach, just like you're kind of on descent. So you're going to have to go through the same steps. And you have to practice this. And for all you airline pilots out there that haven't gone to retraining, or recurrent training, I should say, practice those. Make sure you practice your, your missed approach procedures, your go-around procedures, because we don't do them often. But you want to be ready whenever something happens or doesn't seem right. We call for the go around. Go arounds are free. Incidents and accidents are not. Those at best scenario, you're gonna bend some metal. Worst case scenario, you know, you're going to kill people. So make sure you practice those missed approaches, those go arounds, and your call outs are very important. So stabilizer approach criteria, it depends on the company, it depends on the airline. But it's kind of all the same. We want to, We have certain criteria that we have to meet by a certain point uh, to be stable for the approach. So you could see planes. If you're a, a plane spotter, you could maybe be. You not, might not even be able to catch it and say, "Why are they going around?" Maybe they were unstable because it doesn't have to be something drastic. It could be something as simple as just being below a certain altitude. It looks right, but because of our company procedures, we have to go around. Let me give you a perfect example. So certain airlines, they require you to be completely configured for landing with before landing checklist complete by 1,000 feet, okay? And if we look at the plate for the approach, the ILS localizer runway 22 into El Paso, you'll notice that the touchdown zone elevation at El Paso is 3,950 feet. We'll round it up to 4,000. It's only 50 feet away. The final approach point, or the final, uh, the final approach fix, I should say, pardon me, is crumb kilo kilo, I'm sorry, kilo Romeo uniform Mike Mike. And that point is only at 5,100 feet. This is all MSL, mean sea level elevation. So that's only 100 feet, 100 feet from that 1,000 feet that you need to be fully configured. Typically, I see... Most airlines, they don't do their before landing checklist in full configuration after the final approach fix. That's very normal. Typically, that happens. It's fine. You got plenty of room. And in this case, you have like three miles, like you have about four miles from crumb to the final approach. Uh, I'm sorry, to the, uh, to, to the t- threshold. So that's fine. But in this case, if you don't configure, fully configure before that final approach fix, and this, is, is cr- in this case is crumb, You have to go around. You have to go around. You have to go missed. Again, this is just for uh, instrument approaches. It changes if you're visual. So the criteria for stabilized approach changes a little bit, but it's not much. It's only by 500 feet. So I would rather uh, be fully configured and treat every approach like it is an instrument approach to give me the best chance at success. Make sure that I don't feel rushed. Make sure that I I am configured and that if there is anything abnormal, I have more time to react to it. So I like to treat every approach that I do, even if it's a visual, I set minimums and I treat it as as an instrument approach and I use my stabilized approach criteria for an instrument approach for any approach I do. That gives me the best chance of success and I've yet to do a go around or a missed approach. Uh, my own, so I've seen them. You know, I've seen other people do it, but I've never had to. Uh, because of my flying, I've had to do a misapproach. Knock on wood, right? But that's uh, that's that's my that's my example, and that's what I do in real life operations. I make sure that I am stable before. Make sure that I look at the touchdown zone elevation, look at the altitude of the uh, final approach fix, and I make my determination if I need to configure earlier. So I can part of my brief. I can say, hey. I see that the touchdowns elevation is close to 4,000 feet. Crumb is at 5,100 feet. That's only 100 feet from 1,000 feet where we need to be completely stable in an, in an instrument approach. I'll go ahead and configure. I'll call for flap 5, a 4 checklist at FISB. That's the penultimate fix. That's the one before Crumb. So I'll call for that, and I brief it that way so both uh, the captain and I can be aware. So where it's kind of a shared mental model, we want to be on the same page. So that's your stabilized approach criteria and that's what we determine or some of the reasons why we would call for a go around or missed approach so as a passenger what should you expect on a go around well you should feel like you're taking off again that's it don't be surprised it's normal just know that the crew is being safe and is keeping you safe by doing a go around something went wrong or something wasn't just right I just previously told you about different waypoints, different altitudes, configurations. If you go around, it's because it was the safest thing to do. We had a go around a few weeks ago, and a passenger after we landed was like, oh my God, it was the most traumatic experience, (laughs) and I just lost 10 years of my life. And the captain with his humor said, well, which way? are you older or are you, or are you younger now? If you're younger, you're welcome. <laughs> so it shouldn't be traumatic. If you're a first-time flyer, maybe it's a little bit unusual, or maybe if you're a first-time flyer, it's normal. I was like, oh, we do this every day. But if you're a seasoned traveler and you've never done a go-around or a missed approach, then um, actually, you know what? Now that I think of it, this is my second go-around. The first one was a missed approach because the visibility wasn't right. So we got down to minimums under approach. We have a pretty much a set altitude we have to descend to. And if we don't have the runway in sight, we have to go missed approach. So we went, uh, this was in Greenville, South Carolina. We went down to minimums. I did not have the approach lighting uh, system in sight or the runway. And I called for the missed. We came back around. We actually did a CAT2 approach, which lowers our minimums. And then we were able to do so. Everyone was getting in, and we decided to do that, to do the approach again. Very smart. I was very proud of that call. We did, the, we did the right thing. So as a passenger, don't worry about it. It's normal. Enjoy it. It's fun. It's not often that happens. Now, if you're running a little bit late, uh, then, yeah, I guess. You're going to have to do another 15, 20 minutes to get re for the approach. Um, this go-around that I talked about last night I was commuting from Denver to Las Vegas and I chose another airline over the one I originally planned. So I I was planning on United, but this other one, I figured I was going to have a better chance. It was a little bigger airplane and I had a better opportunity with this airline, I think. So I chose that one. They were departed identical times. They were departing at the same time and because we went, we did a go around We ended up coming back, and as we're taxiing to the gate on the second attempt, the other the United flight was right behind us. So I thought that was funny. I don't know if you think it's funny, but yeah, it happened. But yeah, it's not. It shouldn't be traumatic. It's fun, you know. You hear those engines just spool up, and you feel that takeoff power going. And sometimes it's even more power. You get go around reserve on that baby. So it's really fun. So it should be it should be a fun experience to do a uh, a go around or a missed approach, unless it was a really bumpy ride. I think um, maybe if maybe if I remember as a passenger, I think we were flying into Boston. This was over ten years ago. I think we did a missed or go around on an approach into Boston was really bumpy. The pilots were really fighting with that airplane, and I think we did a go, go around. I don't remember, but anyways, it should be fun. And enjoy it. All right, boys and girls, I'm going to leave you with this. I've been making some observations and I always talk about just putting your best foot forward. And I' just been making observations how our society is very individualistic, if that's even a word. But most of the time, we're a society of me, me, me. What can they do for me? What can you do for me? What can the company do for me? But sometimes we have to make sacrifices at our own peril to improve the lives of others. We have to be a society of community. It's okay to be an individual. That's what makes us unique. But we can't do it to the extent that we're now sacrificing others. Because we're a community, right? It's just like people complain about paying property taxes or, or part of their property taxes or going to schools. So, well, I don't have any kids. But we're a society. These kids are going to be part of our society. They're going to be paying into the fund of our social security. So when I retire, I get a pension, right? (laughs) We shouldn't count on that really too heavily. But we need to think about what can we do for others? We're here to serve people. Our purpose in life is to serve others. So I challenge you to go out there today And make someone happy. Make someone's day. Smile. Compliment them on their shoes. On their coat. On their earrings. On how good they smell. Or if you see someone doing a really good deed, hype them up. Hey, that was really cool. I really appreciate it. Take their name down. Submit it as a review to the company. Push that old lady with a wheelchair down the jet bridge. Just do something nice for someone, all right? Or it could be something huge as picking up that upgrade option to help your company rebalance the staffing, you know, the staffing imbalance. It could mean that. That's something, that's a huge sacrifice. You know, I am getting close to my upgrade time and the option is going to be there for me to upgrade. I want to upgrade. I'm interested in that but i want to get there quicker so i'm picking up more flying so i can get there quicker so i can help out the little that i can everyone makes an impact a lot of times we think that we don't make a we don't make a an impact or we we're insignificant but if we all think that way we're never going to have an impact we're never going to see the change that we want to see we're never going to have the change that we want to see so start making a change so once again thank you so much for your support Thank you for being here. Thank you for allowing me to be in your ears for a little bit on your commute to work. Or if you're sitting alone in your room, I don't know what you're doing, but I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Until next time, this is Manny Ramirez. Hey, fellow aviation enthusiasts, before I let you go, I'd like to ask you for a huge favor. If you could please go to the platform where you're listening this podcast in and leave a review, some feedback and some comments. I really do appreciate that. I want to make the Tailwinds and Sunshine podcast your podcast. I also want to give a huge thanks to my friends and co-workers that have shared the podcast with their friends and family. That means the world to me. I really appreciate your support and your subscriptions. If you want to reach out to me, you can email me at the CFI at gmail.com, or you can message me directly on Instagram at climbvx. That's C-L-I-M-B as in Bravo, B as in Victor, X-Ray. You can reach me there with your suggestions or any feedback. Once again, thank you for the bottom of my heart. I appreciate the support. And until next episode, I wish you tailwinds and sunshine. See you. The statements made on the show are my own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of my employer.